You are listening to Len Tai Kang, the official podcast of the Amnesty International Nagoya Multicultural Group from planet, many people, innumerable viewpoints, justice and equity for all. Yokoso from Aichi Prefecture, Japan, and to the Rentaikan podcast, where we look into human rights issues from all over the world and look at ways that we, as everyday people, can make a difference. You can hit us up on social media on either Facebook or Instagram at AIMCG Nagoya or Twitter at AIMCG underscore Nagoya. We'll have nothing but love for you too if you leave us a review on iTunes. Fun fact for this episode December is Universal Human Rights Month, the 10th being Human Rights Day. This is because on the 10th of December 1948, the United Nations adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a document that has been translated into more than 500 languages, which is more than any other document in the world. If you listened to our previous episode, you might remember that the UN Human Rights Council. Recently added resolution 48 13, which states that access to a clean, sustainable, and healthy environment is a human right. Today and every day of this month is a good time to remember that all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights, as stated in Article 1 of the aforementioned Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Episode 3 The Future. This is the third and final episode of the Plight of Refugees and Asylum Seekers in Japan series. In the previous episode, we have discussed the reported experience of the asylum seeking process alongside the contrast between policies and the reality of those affected by said policies. In this episode, we would like to focus on the future, how things can be improved or reformed. It's been said that the issues in the asylum seeking system in Japan are fueled by ideals of being a homogenous country and backed by kentoshuni, a belief that Japanese nationality is or should be based on Japanese blood. Numerous scholars have analyzed the symptoms of this issue in various academic papers. And we must not forget that the UN Human Rights Council has repeatedly criticized Japan for its policies. Yet, Japan has still kept its door for asylum seekers closed tight with a narrow slit for the exceptional entry. Any issues regarding immigration or asylum seeking are buried under policies that only serve to either cover up root issues or offer immediate solutions without addressing any of those root issues. Even Japan's reason for signing up to the Refugee Convention has been described as political rather than humanitarian. How can such a complicated issue be resolved then? The answer is one step at a time. It has been contended that the seeds of this systematic issue were planted at least 300 years ago during the Sakoku era, literally the locked country era. It would be unrealistic to hope for an enormous change that would flip the switch over a couple of months. Still, we must not lose hope and we must not buy into the idea. That nothing will change at any point in this process. 
The first step in many changes involve being informed. There is a lot of misinformation or lack of information in the media. This creates a gap between the general public and actual migrants or refugees, which also creates a gap in perception. A study conducted in Australia, a nation that has been recognized as running a punitive and unaccountable system that has similarities to Japan, showed that citizens who are more confident in their views were most likely to be the ones who held false ones. Other research has found that those who held beliefs that were inaccurate tended to have knowledge that corresponded with media reporting that strips humanity from asylum seekers. The news, according to polling, is mixed from Japan. An NHK poll in 2018 found that less than a quarter of the 3,000 respondents stated that Japan should actively accept more refugees, while more than half said that this should be done carefully. More worrying, 11% felt Japan took in plenty of asylum seekers, a baffling figure. This is a reflection of the poor dissemination of information on this issue in the country. And when a section of the populace is starting from a faulty premise, it becomes an obstacle when trying to resolve this issue. And this is not just about Japan. The global internally displaced people crisis has especially made the system worse in many countries around the world. This is why we would like to discuss the issue on both macro and micro levels in what can be done in Japan and globally. To provide insight to our observations so far, the displaced persons crisis, what we can do as a society, and more, we have conducted interviews with two people who work in the field of refugee and asylum seeker aid. First, we sat down with Maho Hadano from Door to Asylum Nagoya, or DAN. DAN is an NPO that assists refugees and asylum seekers in the Aichi Gifu region, centering on Nagoya. The asylum-seeking application process in Japan usually lasts around three years, but it can last longer than five years in some cases. Dan provides support to asylum seekers during this long process, as well as serves as a safety net for them while they build a supportive community in Japan. As Dan's coordinator from its very beginning in 2012, Maho Harano is well positioned to provide insight about how the Japanese asylum process can be improved and what the average person can do. Many asylum seekers have a huge obstacle placed in front of them by not being given the right to work once their application has been submitted. As someone who works in an NPO dealing with asylum seekers and refugees, what impact does this have on the ability of asylum seekers to see their claim through to its completion? If you could replace or amend the current system, what system would you prefer to be put in place? Of course, not being able to work while applying for refugee status in Japan has a very negative impact on asylum seekers. But to be precise, there are um, asylum seekers who have the right to work and who does not have the right to work. I believe that this um, system itself is making discrimination between asylum seekers because asylum seekers are more likely to be marginalized due to their vulnerable position in society and their status as refugees. But this Japanese system of dividing asylum seekers creates further disparities among refugees, refugee applicants and asylum seekers. And in Refugee Convention, Article 31, 
which is refugees unlawfully in the country of refuge, it says that contracting status shall not impose penalties on account of their illegal entry or presence on refugees. So this means you should not give any penalty just because they are undocumented. But the situation in Japan is actually dividing and actually giving a penalties to those who are staying undocumented. The root of the problem is that the refugees who must be recognized as a refugee are actually not being recognized. In October 1981, Japan joined the Refugee Convention. As a result, domestic law were revised from Immigration Control Order to the Immigration Control and Refugee Recognition Act. And many experts point out that this is where the root of the problem lies, because the definition of refugee in Japan's domestic law is the same as the definition in the Refugee Convention. But in reality, like since the asylum seekers came to Japan, he or she is not being recognized as a refugee. If that person had been to another country, there is a high possibility that that person is granted a refugee status. And the significance of being a signatory of the Refugee Convention is to protect refugees, I believe. Therefore, the first and the foremost priority for reform must be to ensure that those who should be recognized are properly protected. With little financial support and no work rights available for many asylum seekers, the burden for their welfare often finds its way to the NPO sector in Japan. How is your organization coping with those who seek your help? What reforms would you like to see to make your job easier? First, I would like to introduce you the situation of asylum seekers in Chubu area. As a result of the COVID-19, Refugee applicants who have been detained at Nagoya Immigration Bureau as a measure against dense or becoming overcrowded have been released on provisional release without work permits or health insurance. And refugees and refugee applicants who are eligible to work have been dismissed or have had their jobs reduced due to the effect of the pandemic, resulting in great distress. However, there is no legal basis for guaranteeing refugee applicants' welfare in Japan. And then, Door to Asylum Nagoya, the only organization in Chibu area that specializes in refugee support as NPO, is receiving an increasing number of consultations from refugees and refugee applicants due to COVID-19. If we are not able to provide emergency assistance to meet their needs, we often lose contact with them afterwards, which leads to their isolation and worsening deprivation. Until last year, there is no food that we could provide directly and quickly, and the food bank we worked together also had shortage of food, and there had been shortage of rice in normal times. And also, we did not have any shelter operated by Dan. But right now, our organization is coping with these problems with the cooperation of new partners we regularly collect food and deliver it to needy refugee applicants or give it to them when they come to our office for consultations. We are a small organization and can't do everything on our own, but with the help of local organizations and supporters, we are able to help those who are destitute. 
through food and housing assistance, we want to prevent the impoverishment and isolation of refugees and help them achieve a stable and independent life. And the reforms that I would like to see to make my job easier is that since there is no legal basis for granting refugee applicants welfare in Japan, that would be something that needs to be changed. But again, I believe that just changing the law for asylum seekers is alone is not the solution. Because ideally, my job would be much easier if the Ministry of Justice would accurately and promptly protect those who should be recognized as refugees. What effect does the provisional release system, as well as mandatory detention, have on the mental health of asylum seekers? Do you believe this system should be reformed? If yes, why and how? Yes, it has a huge negative impact, and I do believe that this system should be reformed. And why? First of all, I think asylum seekers should not be treated differently because of their documented or undocumented. I heard from an asylum seeker that if I go back to my country, I'll be killed. But if I stay in Japan, I'll be mentally killed. We could say that current Japanese system is against this non-refoulement in the sense that pushing or forcing asylum seekers to choose to return because they can't stand or bear the life without any welfare and safety net or being in detention forever without knowing when they will be able to get out. Many people say that asylum seekers in Japan are facing double persecution, persecution in their country and in Japan. And how this system should be reformed is, first of all, it is necessary to immediately review the principle of mandatory detention. In addition, priority should be given to alternative measures to detention, and the maximum period of detention should be set, and the judiciary, not immigration office, should decide whether or not to detain a person. And next, for a provisional release system, they should either have a right to access or asylum seekers should have the right to access the welfare or be given a work permit. Although there is a system by Ministry of Foreign Affairs to provide assistance for asylum seekers who are destitute, there are said to be around 30,000 asylum seekers now residing in Japan, but only about 300 of them are receiving this support. And we hear from many asylum seekers that although they're destitute, they're not being able to receive this support. During this podcast, we have spoken a great deal about the low acceptance rates of refugees in Japan in terms of numbers and percentage of application. As someone who works with lawyers to submit asylum applications, what changes do you believe can be made to the system to see an increase in refugee resettlement numbers? What role do you believe the Japanese government bureaucracy and courts have to play in this change? What changes do I believe can be made is that to separate immigration control and refugee. And what role the Japanese government bureaucracy have to play is that to separate the high-level bureaucracy or career bureaucracy of refugees from the career bureaucracy of immigration control. And what role the court have to play is that Supreme Court ruling that foreigners' rights 
are within the scope of the Immigration Control Act, which was ruled 50 years ago. It's still the standard of the Immigration Bureau and the court in Japan now. In short, the Immigration Act is placed above the international law. Therefore, I request court to comply with international law. Throughout Japan's migration history, there's been a strong emphasis on finding migrants who can adjust to Japanese society. This ranges from the first wave of boat people after the Vietnam War, the Nikkei laborers from Brazil and Peru, up until the resettlement of Karen refugees in 2009. In the exclusive case of refugees, their migration isn't voluntary, but it is to escape from life-threatening danger. In their case, Shouldn't it be incumbent on the government to find out more as to how to help them to adjust to Japanese society rather than to work from the premise that they're already adjusted? Yes, I agree with you. First of all, I would like to note that migrants and refugees should be discussed separately. Protection of refugee is an act of regulation, and when someone who fits the definition of refugee we have a responsibility to protect them. And I think it is important to focus on supporting the resettlement of the protected refugees from the stage where they are in the application process so that they can adapt to Japanese society when after they are recognized. In your opinion, what is the best thing the average person can do to either directly or indirectly help asylum seekers refugees, or displaced people in Japan. What is your message to our listeners as to how they can help asylum seekers and refugees? A refugee applicant told me that just smiling at me when our eyes meet on the train made me happy and made me feel that it was okay to stay in this country. In fact, when we meet a foreigner in Japan, we cannot distinguish whether that person is a refugee or a person who is in Japan for another purpose. However, if they are a refugee, like those in the refugee camps, they have experienced the murder of their family members in front of their eyes, or have been tortured, or different experiences that refugees normally face. And it is my hope that many people will be able to use their imagination that this person might be a refugee and might have faced difficulty in their lives but I believe a society made up of people who have imagination from others will be a very warm society. When I often talk about refugees, since I'm in a position to assist those who come to Japan to seek asylum, I think through refugees, we get to know the human rights standard of our society. Before we continue, we would like to share with you a project that Door to Asylum Nagoya recently started. Nine out of ten asylum-seeking applications take around eight months to issue a working permit to its applicants. This leaves asylum seekers without work or health insurance. If your health is in critical condition, going to the doctors would be a sensible thing to do. However, without health insurance, the financial burden can be unbearable. Door to Asylum Nagoya is running a fundraiser where all donations go toward covering medical fees for asylum seekers. If you own a Japanese bank account, you can donate via bank transfer. 
we have provided Dan's bank account details in the description. One is Mitsubishi UFJ Bank, and another is Japan Post Bank. Once you've donated, please send an email to info at door-to-asylum.jp to let them know that your donation is to support the medical fees of asylum seekers. Now, back to the podcast. After hearing from Maho Harano about ways to reform the Japanese asylum-seeking process and the situation in Japan, we should remember that the refugee and asylum-seeker crisis is not exclusively confined to one country, with Germany and Turkey being exceptions. The bulk of refugees and asylum-seekers are hosted in countries in the underdeveloped South, such as Uganda, Pakistan, and Colombia. Since the early 2000s to the mid-2010s, populist movements hostile to migrants, asylum seekers, and refugees in the global north and wealthy countries have attained prominence. As a result, it's harder for governments to persuade their citizens of the need for a more liberal refugee resettlement program. To find out more about how to relieve this situation, we talked to Jane Best from Refugee Empowerment International, or REI. REI is an NGO based in Japan and Australia. It aims to raise funds to support people displaced by war, violence, or persecution, as well as refugees returning home. Since 1979, REI has funded more than 800 projects, accumulating to a total of more than 11 million US dollars, and strictly conducts field visits to assess all funding applications and ensure accountability transparency. Jane Best is the executive director of REI and will provide us insight regarding the international situation concerning asylum seekers, refugees, and otherwise displaced people. Could you please explain who a typical asylum seeker, refugee, or displaced person is in terms of demographics, their typical journey, and why their ordeal isn't over once they've gotten out of immediate danger? There is no typical at all. It could happen to anyone. And that's something that's really important to know. Nobody would choose to be a refugee. Nobody would choose to be a displaced person. And therefore, it doesn't choose who is going to be displaced. If somebody is in danger, they all have to flee. And so it's very hard to talk about typical. There are more women and children than men for a variety of reasons. The men may be involved in protecting the home area. They may stay behind to protect lands and they want their family to get to safety. But apart from that, there's no typical. In terms of journeys, I mean, it could take them just days to get to safety. It could take them weeks and weeks. And the majority of people will have to walk. Depends how well off they are, because it doesn't discriminate between well off and poor people. If there's danger, there's danger. But an awful lot of people are walking. And they're having to carry whatever they could take with them, which, you know, when you're having to leave in a hurry, may not be everything. Well, it certainly won't be everything because they wouldn't be able to carry it. So they would be they'd be very tired. Some of them may be hurt. Some of them may be needing medical treatment just from something that is part of their lives anyway. So it's a tough journey, tiring. There may be terrible weather. They won't have protection. They won't be able to take their roof with them. So the journey could be pretty awful. And their deal is not over when they get out of the danger because where are they going to stay? 
where are they going to get any kind of shelter? Where will they get food? Probably not a convenient store along that route in the middle of the jungle, and they won't have any money. And they may not be very welcome when they get to safety, because it probably is an area where there are limited resources, and they may be competing with the host population for those resources and so on. So integration and acceptance may be another problem. Of course, it depends how close they are to the problem they left behind as to whether they'd be in, in danger. Most of them would be seeking somewhere where they're relatively safe from that. But it, their ordeal is not over because they've got to reestablish themselves. They've got to find some way of caring for themselves and caring for their families. It's tough. There's a misconception in some countries, backed by research, that rich nations take in a bigger proportion of asylum seekers than underdeveloped nations. There is also a misconception that a refugee or asylum seeker is indistinguishable from an economic migrant. Where do you think these misconceptions come from? Largely from media. The media are reporting this to people, and therefore it's the media that are providing the information. And those are where the misconceptions come from. Obviously, there's a degree of interpreting the media and interpreting the understanding of it. But the first misconception about the rich nations taking in a bigger proportion is because a lot of the media are in the rich nations, and therefore the reporting is coming from those media who are <laughs> glamorizing is the wrong word but exaggerating sometimes the situation or simply reporting the situation only in their country. And therefore, it's neglecting information and news about other countries. There's no doubt that the majority of refugees and IDPs are hosted in the less developed world. That is true. When it comes to asylum seekers, they are more likely to be applying for asylum in a richer country because that's the place where they're going to get more security, or so they think. Not always true, I have to say that. The lack of distinguishing between refugees and migrants is, again, the media. The media probably haven't checked out who is a refugee and who's a migrant. So they will be grouping everyone together, which is horribly unfortunate because the migrants are choosing to move as opposed to the refugees who have no choice in having to flee because they need to get to safety. And in many instances, they probably end up in, we're thinking of the boats probably, people fleeing in boats where it's often grouped together and they will end up in the same place because they've had to travel and travel and travel to a degree of safety and so the media are not distinguishing from partly because the media actually don't know who is a refugee and who is a migrant so therefore it's not being reported to the world. With misinformation out there about asylum seekers and the asylum process it can be hard to have an honest conversation about the need to embrace a more liberal refugee resettlement policy in multiple countries. What changes need to be made to make the conversation in public square less toxic? Also, how do we humanize asylum seekers, refugees, and displaced people and clarify some of the existing distortions? This is basically understanding and sharing information which is not happening because again going back to the media there's an exaggerated response there's there's fear people don't understand so it's all about what people don't know and looking at the whole situation it's exaggerated by the reporting and therefore 
people are not prepared to embrace it. They are afraid of being engulfed by asylum seekers. I'm talking about the more developed world now, the, the countries that are receiving asylum requests. Now, out of 80 million people around the world who've been displaced, not very many of those are seeking asylum. I think it's 4 million, don't quote me on the exact figure, but the number of people who are seeking asylum is not huge. The majority of refugees and IDPs want to go home. That's their culture, that's their home, that's what they want to do. The people who really can't go home and face a lot of danger will seek asylum. What people have to understand is that it's not a huge number. It's not, they're not going to engulf a country. They're not going to take over everybody's jobs and swamp the health system. In fact, it's proved to be quite the opposite. If only we could get this information out to the public that they don't have to be afraid. And in fact, in many cases, people who are granted asylum are filling jobs that others are not doing. So they are a very important part of the community. And there's plenty of instances to show that refugees who've been given asylum have actually made a very valuable contribution to the economy of the areas. And they're hardworking and they are long time working. They are not going to go off and seek another job. So if only this information could be shared more, that would certainly help the situation. If you could have our listeners do one thing that would benefit refugees, asylum seekers, and displaced people after this interview, what would that be? Share stories. We have lots and lots of stories on our website, on our social media, about the individuals and what they have done to face the challenges that they have and how they have succeeded, how they have shown such resilience and determination, humanize the people. It's not a big blob of mass. It's not a big mass of people. They are people, individuals. And to share the stories of the individuals and therefore humanize the situation and get people to understand that refugees are, are similar to everybody else with their dreams and their hopes. And a lot of them are so well qualified that people will be surprised. So share stories. And that's what I think people should do. Please. After hearing from all our interviewees coming from various standpoints in the plight of asylum seekers and refugees in Japan series, the takeaway of this episode and series as a whole would be systematic change and humanization. We believe that, as everyday people, by tackling the dehumanization of displaced persons, we can bring asylum-seeking processes worldwide closer to systematic change. Asylum seekers, refugees, and otherwise displaced persons are human first, everything else later. It can be difficult to remember this simple fact when there are misconceptions that remain unchanged due to misinformation and human bias. Not to mention reports that trigger strong reactions, but we can all remember to smile at and share any stories we know about our fellow human beings. Thank you for listening to the end. Links to the study mentioned earlier will be posted in the show notes for those who want to read them. If you would like to find out more about this topic, please be sure to follow us on social media. You can do so on Facebook or Instagram at AIMCG Nagoya, as well as on Twitter at AIMCG underscore Nagoya. Again, we would love to hear what you think about us 
And don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We would like to thank Maho Harano and Jane Best for their cooperation in this episode. You can find out more about the work that Maho does at door-to-asylum.jp as well as the work that Jane does at rei-ngo.org. We would also like to thank our group members, Glenn and Layla, for their hard work in the production of this episode. And finally, we would like to thank you for following and listening to us this year. And we hope to be back and speak to you next time in 2022.